Amen. Amen. Never failed us yet. We've trusted in him. Let's be seated and invite, I want to invite you to join me in prayer as you're being seated. God, we thank you this morning that we who have trusted in Jesus can say that you have never failed us yet. And so, Father, help us to remember, help us to remember all of the ways that you have sustained us, the ways that you have strengthened us, the way that you have delivered us. God, we give you praise today, and we come before you. We come before you, and on this Memorial Day weekend, we remember Jesus' words when he said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. And God, we think of that this weekend as we give thanks to you and remember those who have given their lives and service to our country for the freedoms and for the blessings that we enjoy because of those sacrifices. God, we give you thank, thanks. And we praise you. We praise you, God, for what we have and we pray that you would help us to be grateful to you. But God, we also remember this morning on this weekend that you have shown your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We praise you that while we were your enemies, that we were reconciled to you, God, through the death of your son. Father, you didn't die for your friends. You died for your enemies and you reconciled us through your son and we give you praise today for that. And Lord, we thank you that your promise still stands. All of the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ, all of the promises of your word are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that you've promised that and that we can believe that. Thank you, God, that your compassions fail not. Thank you that they are new every morning. Thank you also, God, for this incredible promise where you say, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yes. I will help you, yes. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. God, we thank you that in Jesus again, all of these promises are yes and amen. And we thank you as we are gathered together this morning that in Christ we can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from your love, O God, that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we come now to the preaching of your word, we thank you for this promise that you, that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. God, I pray this morning that you would begin a good work in some who are here this morning as they hear your word. And God, that those who are here who have believed in Christ and you've begun a good work in us, we pray that you would continue that work and complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ. 
We give you praise this morning and thank you for your promises and we thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 56. As was mentioned earlier, we are beginning a new series. We finished our study through our series through the book of Hebrews this past Lord's Day. And today, as we come to our summer schedule, for the next several weeks, we'll be walking through Psalms 56 through 69. Psalms 56 through 69. And today we begin in Psalm 56. It's on page 476 of the Blue Bibles that are underneath the chairs. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you and encourage you to grab a Bible from underneath a chair in front of you so that you can follow along in God's Word this morning. Psalm 56. Before I begin to read, I want you to notice just a little bit about what we see in the heading. Notice in the middle of the heading at the top of Psalm 56, the words of David. This is a psalm of David. And then specifically, we're told not only who wrote this psalm, but when it was written. After those words of David, it says, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And we'll talk about what that means and what that looks like in just a couple of minutes. But let's read together through God's word in the psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God." You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise In the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. 
As we begin to think our way through this psalm together this morning, I want to give you a statement because one of the things that's so very clear in the psalm, and particularly in the chorus that's repeated twice, we see that there is a relationship between fear and faith. There's a relationship, there's a connection between fear and faith. And so here is a statement I want us to think about as we begin. Faith is a deliberate and defiant act against the emotion of fear. Faith is a deliberate and defiant act against the emotion of fear. Fear. Now, in this psalm, David is in fear for his life. And he is wrestling with what could be called the fear of man. And specifically, he's wrestling with this fear, this fear of man, because of the fear of dying and being put to death at the hands of man. And while most of us this morning are probably not in that circumstance where we have people literally who are pursuing us, desiring when they find us and when they have the opportunity to kill us, there's still a great deal of lessons. There's, there's several good lessons for us, a great deal for us to learn from this psalm. Because many of us may not fear man because we fear death at the hands of man, but many of us fear man because we fear disapproval. At the hands of man. We want the approval of other people. It's a, hum- it's a part of our human nature. We want others to accept us. We want others to admire us. And sometimes we are filled with fear of man because we fear that we will not have these things. And so there's several things for us to see in this psalm that are relevant to us this morning as we think about David and the situation that he was in particularly. Again, let me show you, and we've just seen this, that there's a chorus. A psalm is a song. And most songs that we sing have a chorus, something that we repeat at least twice, sometimes more than that in the song. And we have something like that in this psalm. And I want you to see that. Look again with me quickly at verses 3 and 4 and then verses 10 and 11. Three and four, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And then it's repeated, virtually the same, a little bit different, but saying the same things, verses 10 and 11, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The chorus particularly helps us to see this connection between fear and faith. So let's walk through this psalm, this song, and let's learn from David, the king. There are things that we're going to see in this psalm of David that you and I will be able to relate to. We'll think of David and we'll think of ourselves. But more importantly than that, in this psalm, we'll read about what David is saying and we'll think about David and we'll think about Jesus Christ, the son of David, as he's called often in the New Testament. And so there are lots of applications. So let's begin. First of all, he, David, commences his cry. 
in verses 1 and 2. The psalm at the very beginning is a cry to God, and he commences his cry by crying out for grace. David begins, he commences his cry in verses 1 and 2 by crying out for grace. Some translations use the word mercy here. Those terms are very similar in the Hebrew language. He is crying out for grace. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God. He's crying out for grace toward himself. And from the very beginning, I think many of us will remember what the New Testament says when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, through the gospel, we have a new relationship with God. We have a new way to connect to God. We don't connect to God, and, and ultimately never pe- people never did in the first place connect with God, but sometimes they thought they did or we thought they did. We never connect with God through our works. We never earn God's favor by doing good, and the gospel makes that vividly clear, that we are saved by grace, not by works, not by our efforts. Just as David is crying out to God for grace here to be delivered from those who are trying to take his life, we cry out through Jesus Christ and through our faith in him, we cry out to God for grace. Now, what is grace? Grace has been well-defined, I think, like this. Grace is unmerited favor and kindness unmerited favor and kindness. In other words, we don't deserve favor from God and we don't deserve kindness from God, but God gives it to us anyway through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. And that's what we see here. David is crying out for grace. Maybe there are those of you this morning who've not yet done that, who've not yet cried out to God, trusting in Jesus Christ, for grace, for his unmerited favor, for his unmerited forgiveness and kindness. The gospel makes it vividly clear that we don't work for God's acceptance. Instead, we worked for God's glory. We don't work for God's acceptance. We have his acceptance by grace. And then because of his grace and his kindness, we are motivated to obey him, to serve him. Again, not for his approval or acceptance, but for his glory. Now, this psalm, again, speaks about David, but it also speaks about another. It speaks about Jesus. Think of David here. Let me just back up just a second and give you the the story behind this psalm. David is going to be the king after Saul. Saul knows this. He has heard this. He's actually heard the people singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, and he's jealous. And so what is happening here is Saul has sent out men 
to find David and to kill David because of his jealousy. And that's really the initial background to the psalm. He is being pursued, and Saul's men are seeking to find him and to kill him. And so he cries out to God for mercy. And the psalm is about his being a refuge, a refugee, and just trying to find refuge wherever he can. It actually, the the heading of the psalm tells us, it actually leads him to a place you would have never expected David to go. And here's why I say that. He goes to Gath, and Gath was the hometown for Goliath, the Philistine that David had killed earlier in his life. Why exactly David would go to this city, I'm not sure. Maybe Saul's men were so close to him and so close to finding him and killing him that he had no choice. And so he goes into this place where he is in a town filled, a city filled with his enemies because he has, ca- he has killed their hero, Goliath. And so they have also seized him at this point, the psalm tells us. So David has two groups of people who hate him and who are striving to find him and to harm him in any way that they can. And so David is suffering, and this foreshadows the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see in just a few minutes even more parallels there. But I want you to notice this, and I want to show you that, that I'm not just being arbitrary in saying this. The New Testament quite often connects the Psalms of David, and particularly his suffering, to the suffering of Jesus. For example, Psalm 22 is also a Psalm of David. It's the Psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus uses on the cross, that Jesus says on the cross. And the New Testament makes it very clear that while Psalm 22 was written by David about his experiences, though he used metaphor quite often as David described his experience in Psalm 22, it was fulfilled ultimately and literally in Jesus' suffering and death on the cross for us. And so Psalm 22 is a psalm of David about his suffering, but actually we find out in the New Testament that Jesus is the sufferer. That's being described in Psalm 22. And we see the same kind of thing here in Psalm 56. David is the sufferer, but his sufferings foreshadow the one who would come after him, the son of David, Jesus our Lord. So David commences this cry by crying out for grace. Then in verses 3 and 4, we come to the chorus for the first time. Look again at verses 3 and 4. David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Again, as I've said before, this chorus, here in 3 and 4, and we'll see it again in 10 and 11, connects fear and faith. And essentially what this chorus says is this, David says, I shall not be afraid, trusting God's word which reveals his promises. I shall not be afraid, trusting God's word which reveals his promises. Now let me tell you how I get that. In the story that we have at this point in the life of David, what has happened is this. God's Word 
has come through the prophet Samuel, and Samuel has said to David that you are going to be king over Israel. God's word through Samuel was to David that he would be the king over all of Israel. And so I think at least in part, what is being referred to here when he says, in God whose word I praise, he's saying, I praise this word that God gave me through the prophet Samuel, the verbal word that I would be king. Now, why would that help him in this circumstance? Because he knows that if he's going to be king, then he can't be killed before he becomes king. And so he continues to trust in this word that he's received by God or from God by Samuel the prophet that he would be king now one of the things that I think we can learn here and we can use David here to help us think about ourselves and how we should deal with things in our lives is this we should also hold tightly to God's promises the promises that God has given to us in Jesus Christ especially when we feel the emotion of fear and by the way this this uh, first time the chorus is given, be, it begins like this, when I am afraid. What's David doing there? He's admitting that he is afraid at times. He does experience this emotion. Being a Christian and having genuine faith doesn't mean you won't ever experience the emotion of fear. The issue is not whether you will, but what you will do when you will. And do experience this. And David gives us an example of what we should do. We put our trust in God, particularly His Word, what He has promised through His Word. Now, let me give you two promises. There's so many, but I just want to give you two this morning that I hope you'll cling to this week in light of this psalm. The first promise is this. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, Jesus promises there that he's going to return. That he's going to return for his disciples. That's who he spoke this promise to in the upper room, but it applies to all of his disciples. He will return for us, and we will be with him forever. That's John 14. Here's a second one that I want you to jot down. This is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this there, If we endure, we will reign with him. So remember those two words this week, return, reign. They'll help you remember these two promises. Jesus says, I will return for you, and you will be with me forever, and you will reign with me. Those are great promises to praise and to praise God for when you find yourself feeling this emotion, the emotion of fear. As I think about Jesus' promise to return for us, I think about a story that's a true story that was told several years ago. There was an earthquake in Armenia in late 1988 and the earthquake was so severe that in four minutes 30,000 people died 
It was an incredible earthquake. And a father whose son was in school when this earthquake hit went to find his son if possible. He knew the lot where the school was, and he knew that the school was in the back right-hand corner of the lot. And when he got there, he couldn't see the school. It was gone, totally gone. But he went back to the back right-hand corner of that lot, and he began with his hands to dig, began to pull up rocks and push away dirt and find any kind of thing that he could use to help him just try to get things off of the place from where he knew his son's classroom was in that school building. He did so for hour after hour after hour. People would show up. For example, other parents showed up. And he would just say this, would you help me? And they would all say, it's too late. There's no use. There's just no, no use. It's too late. And so they would leave and he would just continue. Later, the fire department showed up. And he said to them, will you help me? And they said, it's too late. It's, there's no use. And so they left, and he stayed, and he kept on digging. And then the police came, and they said the same thing. He said the same thing to them. Will you help me? They said, it's no use. And he kept digging. And he dug. He literally dug with his hands and anything else he could find for 38 consecutive hours. And then finally, he heard his son's voice. True story. He heard his son's voice. And his son said, Dad, there are several of us here trapped. I knew you would come. I knew you would come. And the father had given him this promise over and over as a young boy. He said this to his son, No matter what happens, I will always come for you. No matter what happens... I will always come for you. I can't help but think of Jesus' promise, right? No matter what happens, he's told us he will come for us. And we will be with him and we will reign with him forever. Then in verses 5 through 7, he completes his cry. This, the, the first part of this psalm is just a cry out, God, uh, David crying out to God. He cries out for wrath at the very end of his cry that we see in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, all day long they injure my cause. More literally, they twist my words. He's talking about his enemies that he's been talking about before the chorus. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? And then he says, in wrath, this is how he ends his cry, in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Notice how it begins and how it ends. Verse 1 begins, be gracious to me. Verse 7 ends in wrath, cast them down. Grace and wrath. Grace and wrath. Every single person in this place this morning and every single person that you will see this next week will one day fall under either God's grace or God's wrath. 
Every person in this room, every person that you will see this week will one day either experience the grace of God or will experience forever the wrath of God. In other words, every person in this room and every person that you'll see this week will either receive what they don't deserve or what they do deserve. And those of us who have come to God trusting in the grace that's made possible and provided for us through Jesus Christ, we will receive what we don't deserve. We will receive His grace. But everyone else who doesn't receive this grace through faith will receive what they deserve. They will receive and experience God's wrath. Now this section, verse 7, ends with what has been called an imprecatory psalm, that is, praying for judgment on people. And quite often people are uncomfortable with this, and we see it, and we're going to see it this summer several times, God's people praying for God's judgment, for God's wrath on those who are their enemies because they are God's enemies. And some of us wonder, is that right? Is it right for us to pray for God's wrath upon our enemies who are our enemies because they are God's enemies? Let me mention two things that I think are important to keep in mind as we answer this question. First of all, when we pray for Jesus to come, He's going to return for us. When we pray for Jesus to come, when we long for Jesus to come, we are at that time, maybe without realizing it, praying for God's judgment upon those who are not ready and who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, with David, his deliverance was going to take place in connection with and through their judgment. So the only way David is, can really pray for his deliverance is to pray for their judgment, for God's wrath to come upon them, for them to be stopped so that they cannot harm him. The same thing is true for us when we pray for the second coming. When we do that, when we pray for Christ to come, we are indirectly praying for God's judgment upon those who have not trusted in Him. Another thing that I think you need to keep in mind is this. When we pray to God and trust God to take matters into His hand in terms of judgment, we're doing that instead of taking it into our hands ourselves. And that's clearly what the New Testament teaches us we're supposed to do. And we see this in Romans. We see this in Paul's great epistle to the Romans, that we, that we don't take revenge, but that we leave that. We don't take vengeance. We leave that in God's hands. And so, yes, there is a sense in which and a way in which it's not wrong for us to pray for God's wrath because God's wrath upon those who are unrepentant in their unbelief is going to take place in connection with our salvation that we long for and that we pray for, for God to save us. Every person is going to fall in one of those two categories. Notice continuing in verses 8 and 9 that he, David, contemplates his comfort. His comfort is essentially this, that God is for him. Look at these verses, verses 8 and 9. 
You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call or when I call. This I know that God is for me. In the midst of running for his life, in the midst of being pursued by people who are trying to kill him, what is his comfort? His comfort is that God knows and God cares. You've kept account of my tossings. Again, more uh, better translated, my wanderings. He's a, he's a refugee. He's running. He's hiding, trying to keep himself alive. And so he's forced to leave and go to different places. He's wandering to stay alive. God knows every step that he's taken, that he's been forced to take in order to escape from his enemies. God knows it all. He has put his tears in a bottle, which again is a beautiful picture of how precious our grief is to our God as his people. Our grief is precious to our God. He knows every tear that we cry and he cares for us in the midst of our pain. They are written in his book, which is a way to communicate to us that he will never forget. There's a record. We need a record. God doesn't. But this is helping us understand that God will never forget what has happened to us at the hands of our enemies, those who never repent. And then at the end of verse 9, I love these words, God is for me. Does that sound familiar? Going back to Romans 8, if God is for us, who shall be against us? That sounds very much like this to me, right? God is for me. What can man do to me? It's the same thing. It's the same basic thing. If God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean we don't have enemies. David had enemies. We'll have enemies possibly Maybe just because of our beliefs as followers of Jesus Christ. We'll have enemies, but what can they do? Nothing, really, ultimately, that won't serve our good. Because in that same text in Romans 8, it not only says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It also says God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we can trust him. He is for us us. Now, how do you know if God's for you? How do you know if God's for you? God is for you if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior and Lord, or if you are willing to and do, in fact, put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as the one and only Lord and Savior. God is for you because you are in Christ. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased in reference to Jesus. But when we believe, we are united to Christ and those words become our words because he is our substitute. He lived a life without sin. He died in his death for our sin. And we receive his righteousness and we receive his death as if it were our own, as if the price had already been paid by us. Because it was paid by Christ. And so we are his beloved children. 
He loves us, not because of anything in us that merits His love, but because of Jesus, because there's everything in Jesus that merits His love. And what Jesus has done, it's as if we've done it in God's eyes. That's what it means to be in Christ. Then verses 10 and 11, we come back to the chorus. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, let me add another thing here. This again, this chorus is still about fear and faith. David is saying, I shall not be afraid trusting God's word, which reveals his person. Now, again, let me show you where I get this. At this point, David would have had God's Word not only verbalized by a prophet like Samuel, but he would have also had God's Word written, at least much of it that we have at the beginning of our Old Testament. And so he would have had God's Word written, and I think without a doubt that David also had read those books that we now call the first books in our Bible, which reveal to us a great deal about who God is, his attributes, his person, And so David, I think, is trusting not only in this verbal promise, but in these written promises or revelations about who God is, his person. Many of you have probably heard me recommend the book Trusting God several times, and I'm going to do it again this morning, because it relates so much to what I think is seen here in this psalm in this regard. We've got several books in the Mission Cafe if you'd like to get one, and we've got several on order because I would love to have every person read this book by Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. And here's essentially what he says in the book. He talks about who God is, and he summarizes God's attributes like this. God is sovereign. God is wise. God is good. And that's why we can trust him. If he was only two of those three, no matter which two you're talking about, we wouldn't be able to trust him in every circumstance, in everything that we face. But if he is all three of these things, which the Bible says he is, if this is who he is in his person, then we can trust him. Let me give you a a real quick example of what he says in the book. Imagine God is sovereign and wise, he says, but not good. Could we trust him? No, not in every situation. Because even though he's sovereign, which means he's in control of everything that comes into our lives, and though he is wise, which means he knows what is best for us in our lives, if he wasn't good, he wouldn't be motivated to control things in a way that would be in our best interest, even though he might know and would know if he was wise and sovereign what is best. Or imagine he says that, God is only wise and good, but not sovereign. Could we trust him in every circumstance? No, we really couldn't. Because even though he would be wise and therefore he would know what's best, and even though he would be good, which means he would desire what's best and be motivated in our best interest, if he's not sovereign, if there are things in this world that aren't under his control ultimately, then we couldn't trust him with every single thing that happens in our lives because it might be something that he didn't have any control over. You see, it's important for us to know who God is, to know Him in His person, because when we know Him as revealed in Scripture, as David certainly did from the written Scriptures that he had, he knew he could trust 
in God. And you and I can trust in God when we're afraid. We can trust him because he's sovereign, because he's wise, and because he's good. And then finally, notice the last two verses in the psalm. He confirms his commitment, and his commitment is this, that he will worship God. He will worship God. Verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, what's happening here? I think what's happening is this. David is fleeing from people who are trying to kill him, and he's made some vows. He said, basically, God, if you'll save my life, I'll offer thank offerings to you. I'll give you praise. I'll give you the glory. I'll worship you. And so he says at the beginning of verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will do what I vowed. I will render thank offerings to you. I don't think this means that at this point he's already been delivered. I think what he's saying is, you've done it before, and I believe you'll do it again. And that's what he's talking about in verse 13, what God has done already. You have, even before this, David's saying, you have delivered my soul from death in the past. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And I believe you'll do it again. We sang that just a minute ago, right? You'll do it again. And David is saying, when you do, and I believe you will, I'll do what I said. I'll keep my vows. I'll do what I said. David had experienced past grace in this way. God had graciously delivered him from death in the past, and he believes on that basis that he's going to experience future grace from God, that God in the future, by his grace, is going to deliver him from death in this particular situation that he's still in as he's captured in Gath. He believes that God is going to work in this situation. And when he does, he says, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to give you the glory. I mentioned that there are a couple of ways that we can think about David in the psalm and we can think about ourselves. He seeks grace to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith. God had made promises to David. And God had revealed his person through the scriptures that had been written at his time. And David was trusting in what God had said in his promises and about himself as a person. And again, those things are models for us when we find ourselves in the same situation. But I want you to see, lastly, one more connection between David and Jesus. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, but Dr. Jim Hamilton says this about this psalm, and I think this is so good. In this psalm, we see... The persecution, opposition, and life-threatening danger of David and the persecution, opposition, and life-threatening danger of the son of David, Jesus, as both of them pass from suffering to glory. Think about David. Here he is facing persecution, opposition, life-threatening danger, and he's suffering in these circumstances. But what's going to happen? We know, right? He becomes king. He has the glory 
of being king. He receives the glory as king of Israel. What about Jesus? Jesus faced persecution, opposition, and life-threatening danger on His way to glory. He will reign forever and ever, and we will reign with Him, our promise says. Look at this phrase, and I'm going to finish. Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. Do you see it? Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. Those words fit in the mouth of David and in the mouth of Jesus, but in a slightly different way. Well, a significantly different way. You have delivered my soul from death. Those are the words of David in the psalm because he had experienced protection from death. He had been protected from dying. But Jesus... These words would fit into the mouth of Jesus too, right? You have delivered my soul from death, not because he experienced protection from dying, but because he experienced resurrection after dying. You have delivered my soul from death. You have delivered my soul from death. For David, you've delivered my soul from dying. For Jesus, you've delivered my soul after dying from death. And it's because of Jesus' death and his resurrection that you and I can be forgiven and that we can live lives of faith in the midst of our fear and glorify God in doing so. Let's pray. Let's bow. Father, we, we thank you for Psalm 65, or 56 rather. We thank you for Psalm 56, God. And praise you for this lesson that we have from David for ourselves, but also this picture that we have of the Lord Jesus above all, the one who has died and was delivered. His soul was delivered from death as you raised him from the dead. He was raised for our justification. And God, I pray for people today to put their hope and their trust completely and solely in Jesus, in his grace, not in works, not in anything we might try to do to earn his acceptance, but to trust in Christ alone. And Father, help those of us who have trusted in you. Help us to trust in you when we find ourselves fearful, when we find ourselves afraid because of the fear of man in whatever way that may come to us in whatever way we may face that. God, would you help us to trust in you and help us to glorify you by overcoming fear because of your promises and because of your person, who you are. We praise you and thank you for this good news of Jesus, our Savior, the Son of David, who has come for us to save us by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.